Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Ten maidens sat in the living room, looking at each other with dread. There was an unspoken secret between them, a shared humiliation. They sat patiently, waiting to see who would be called tonight. For nine years, these women had lived under the roof of Victor Bernard, and each night, one of them was summoned to his room to lie with a man they had been told was a prophet, Jesus Christ incarnate. They never spoke of these nights, but they all knew. They'd been living here since they were as young as 12. Lindsay, a mere teenager, prayed someone would come to rescue her. As she climbed the stairs towards Victor's room, she prayed for someone to protect her from this man she had been told was a savior. But inside Lindsay was a small fire, slowly growing. She turned her thoughts to the women downstairs, as helpless as she felt. Little did she know that despite the shame and isolation she felt, she would one day build the courage to escape and become the savior she so desperately prayed for. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Today we continue our examination of Victor Bernard and his secluded cult, the River Road Fellowship. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. In his early 20s, Victor Bernard was a member of the cult The Way International until it fell apart in the mid-1980s, at which point he began to grow a cult of his own, the River Road Fellowship. Last week, we explored how Victor Bernard established the fellowship by overtaking local Bible study groups in his home state of Minnesota. This week, we'll follow the collapse of the River Road Fellowship as the crimes of Victor Bernard were exposed on a national stage. 
In the late 1990s, Victor Bernard established Shepherd's Camp, a commune for members of his cult to live in isolation from the world at large. It was named Shepherd's Camp because Victor claimed to be the true shepherd of God's flock. Throughout the 90s, Victor's followers gradually went from seeing Victor as their pastor to seeing him as Christ incarnate. In the summer of 2000, Victor chose 10 firstborn girls from the camp to live with him and serve him. They would concentrate on domestic duties so he could spend his energies communing with God. The girls ranged in age from 12 to 24 years old. They were called the Maidens and were married to Victor all at once in a simple June ceremony. Bear in mind, Victor was already married to a woman named Stephanie. She was one of his most ardent believers. They had four sons together, but she lived in a separate home from Victor, which helped him make the argument that he needed women around for housework. Stephanie seemed to be all for the maidens, at least at first. For the girls chosen as Victor's maidens, it was seen as a great honor around the camp. No one suspected Victor's true intentions or guessed how he would exploit them. Soon after moving in with Victor, he began having sex with them on rotation. Some of the girls were as young as 12. Victor claimed that he was teaching them love, that even though they were having sex, his holiness kept their virginities intact. The maidens felt trapped largely because they had no one to turn to for help. Victor actually asked the parents for permission to have sex with their daughters, and all ten sets of parents had agreed. Plus, Shepherd's Camp was almost completely isolated from the outside world. They operated small cleaning and pottery businesses within neighboring towns to help with overhead. But followers had very little contact with non-members otherwise. But on one such occasion, a maiden named Lindsay Turnambi went with her mother to the dentist. Lindsay was wearing a gold ring on her ring finger. It symbolized her spiritual marriage to Victor. The dental hygienist asked why someone in their teens would be wearing what was basically a wedding band. Lindsay was caught on the spot. She stumbled, unsure of what to say. Her mother stepped in with a quick story about the ring being a symbol of her devotion to the church. When they got back to Shepherd's camp, Lindsay's mother, Peggy, brought her before Victor to explain herself. Peggy was reportedly one of Victor's most devout followers, second only to Victor's own wife. But she also knew that the outside world would frown upon what was happening in Shepherd's camp. If people found out that she sent her teenage daughter to live with her pastor, a man in his 40s, and that there was a spiritual wedding between them, questions would be asked the authorities might come knocking. Peggy likely saw it as her spiritual duty to bring Lindsay before Victor for punishment. Victor was furious. He flew into a rage, screaming at Lindsay for possibly arousing suspicions. He coached her to always say that her ring represented her devotion to Christ and made it very clear he never wanted to have to remind her again. Victor's methods for control worked because he had convinced his followers that outside the camp, the devil lurked around every corner. Only he could protect his followers from Satan's grasp, and his followers clung to him. Sure, Victor was known to slip into enraged tirades at the drop of a hat. But according to scripture, God is angry and vengeful and must be obeyed in all things. In this way, the members could justify Victor's rage as holy, almost pure. 
In 2002, when Lindsay was 15, she decided she had had enough. She confronted Victor, telling him she no longer wanted to be a maiden and that she wanted to move back in with her parents. This took tremendous courage, given her age and level of indoctrination into the cult. A quick reminder, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Lindsay had always known that the abuse she suffered was wrong, but she had remained tethered to Victor and the Fellowship through a very powerful tool, guilt. Robert J. Lifton, an expert on cult leaders, has written extensively about guilt as an effective form of coercion. In this case, Victor allowed Lindsay to move back home, but told her that in doing so, she was breaking her mother's heart. He used familial shame to sow seeds of doubt and dependence on him. And because Lindsay's parents were equally indoctrinated, Victor's predictions proved to be right. Lindsay was greeted by a mother who cried openly at the news that Lindsay had rejected the place of a maiden. Her father only spoke a few words to her over the course of the week. Her parents made it very clear to Lindsay that she had failed them. Such was her shame that Lindsay did not tell them about Victor assaulting her. According to psychologist Beverly Engel, author of It Wasn't Your Fault, Victims of sex abuse feel a deep sense of shame because they blame themselves for the abuse occurring. Even when they understand that the abuse is wrong, they feel shame for allowing it to occur. Coupled with the shame of having failed her parents, Lindsay felt utterly hopeless, caged into a life of abuse. A week after moving back in with her parents, Victor held a campfire meeting. He assembled all the maidens and their parents. Despite her moving out, Lindsay and her parents were summoned as well. Here, Victor called out Lindsay for forsaking God and daring to disobey God's word. He said the fate of any chosen maiden who disobeyed him was damnation. Lindsay later described feeling sad and confused. She didn't fully understand why her parents wouldn't help her. She was angry that her parents kept bringing her to Victor, even though she made it clear she didn't want to be a maiden. Victor asked the maidens to stand in a line before their families and asked each of them what they wanted to do. One by one, they said they wanted to remain maidens and worship God by helping Victor. Finally, he got to the end of the line where Lindsay was waiting. He asked her. Lindsay could feel all eyes on her. She felt like she was in a pressure cooker, which was exactly what Victor was banking on. Many cult leaders will use peer pressure situations to rail against dissent among the ranks. In her book, Cults in Our Midst, Dr. Margaret Thaler Singer described how cult leaders use the need for group conformity to control their members. In this case, he made it apparent to Lindsay that she was not only rejecting him, but her friends and family as well. Lindsay caved. She told Victor she would remain a maiden and move back in with him. Her parents rejoiced. Everyone there was happy to see Lindsay return to the Maidens. Throughout the early 2000s, the Maidens lived in an isolated hell designed by Victor. They only saw their parents once a month, sometimes less. They relied on each other for any kind of homeschooling and were responsible for all the chores around Victor's residence. Meanwhile, the Maidens had no idea of what was happening in the outside world. Pop culture was an instrument of the devil and cut off from the camp. So were technologies like cell phones and the internet. 
Yet life at Shepherd's Camp was very different for the young men growing up at the same time as the maidens. The boys had significantly more freedom than the girls. They were taken on hikes and excursions into the wild. Victor even took the young men on excursions to Colorado to study wildlife and reconnect with nature. He created a leadership group for the boys called the Gamblers. None of these privileges, especially a path to leadership, existed for the girls in the fellowship. Victor actively worked to reinforce the idea that men needed to be physically and mentally strong in a hostile world, while the women waited dutifully at home. Victor taught very traditional, patriarchal ideas at the camp. This kept an alpha male, such as himself, firmly at the top of the food chain. But it also devalued the women tremendously. The maidens had little choice but to retreat into themselves and put on the appearance of dutiful, obedient wives. To Victor, this was their proper play in society. While the camp was described by some as an army barracks, such a utilitarian existence didn't apply to Victor. He drove a Cadillac Escalade and a motorcycle, paid for with membership fees. The cult had small businesses in neighboring towns, cleaning homes and selling pottery. In addition to collecting all profits from these little ventures, incoming members were asked to drain their bank accounts and hand the money over to Victor. He then proceeded to squander it on whatever whim his heart desired. Those funds would also pay for Victor to take occasional trips to Brazil. One of Victor's maidens, Cristina Liberato, had immigrated from Brazil to Minneapolis to attend college. Raised in a strict Catholic household, the homesick Cristina found solace amongst the River Road Fellowship. She and Victor would take trips home to Brazil, largely so Victor could enjoy the glassy beaches while crashing with the in-laws. For 10 years, Victor would continue to blow through fellowship coffers, take whirlwind trips to South America, and abuse the 10 women living under his roof, completely unchecked by the outside world. According to Yanya Lalich for the Cultic Studies Journal, cult leaders often use sexual abuse as a way to make victims see themselves as objects rather than people. By assaulting these women, Victor was reinforcing his authoritarian control over them. The youngest of the maidens, Jess Schweiss, knew this abuse was wrong, but had no idea how to stop it. She would mark an X on her calendar whenever she was called to Victor's Lodge. Lindsay would write cryptic notes about going to Victor's Lodge in her diary. The maidens never discussed the abuse with each other for fear of Victor's wrath. Victor was prone to violent outbursts. He was known to even physically abuse members of the fellowship who disobeyed him. He would openly slap members or hit them with nearby objects. One such outburst occurred when Victor discovered Lindsay's diary. He gathered the maidens and he screamed at Lindsay in front of them for putting her visits to his lodge in writing. It's a notable reversal. For years, Victor had told the maidens that he was teaching them love, that what they were doing was holy in the eyes of God, but his adverse reaction to a paper trail proves that he fully understood what he was doing was wrong, that he couldn't afford to have anyone learn of his abuse. Victor ruled Shepherd's Camp with an iron fist. Former River Road Fellowship member Micah Vale described the intensity with which Victor would berate members for the smallest infractions. Victor would verbally abuse anyone who dared question him. He once hit a 12-year-old boy with a two-by-four. One member recalled Victor spitting in someone's face. 
Victor was king of his own private Eden, constantly looking for a snake in his garden. But as happens to so many cult leaders, his downfall would not be a snake in the grass, but a lust for forbidden fruit. Up next, we'll learn how Victor's appetite led to his demise. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. By 2007, Victor Bernard, then in his late 40s, had been sexually abusing his 10 maidens and physically assaulting his devout members for years. But despite his transgressions, he enjoyed unchallenged supremacy at Shepherd's Camp. But Victor's need to control women sexually would soon get the better of him. Dawn Koch and her husband were devout members of the River Road Fellowship. Dawn was a member of the church choir. She was older than the maidens, married with children of her own. One day in the late 2000s, Victor came to her towards the end of a choir rehearsal. He asked to speak with her privately, then preyed on her insecurities. He assured her that she was beautiful in the eyes of God. He would know the eyes of God were his eyes. He convinced her to take off her shirt and sing for him, topless. Soon they were in his room. Dawn became another conquest. While Dawn did feel guilty about cheating on her husband, she also felt a strange sort of privilege. She believed that out of all the women at Shepherd's Camp, she had been chosen by God's prophet. But she was not the only one. Victor soon began sleeping with several other married women in the camp. Remember, in the 1980s, when Victor was in college, he was the victim of emotionally abusive phone calls from his mother, a woman afflicted with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Dr. Timothy Legg wrote for Healthline that bipolar disorder is hereditary. This particular mental illness ran in Victor's family, and Victor's insatiable need for sex is in fact a symptom of bipolar disorder, as were his violent outbursts it's very possible that he was also living with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Victor continued to sleep with several married women at camp. After having abused the daughters of these families for years without consequence, he likely assumed it would be the same case with these older women, but he underestimated his power over these older women. While the young maidens knew they were being victimized, the married women had a very different view. Don Koch said she felt special that a man as holy as Victor had chosen her and wouldn't have felt the same shame to keep her quiet. It's likely his other mistresses agreed. While they certainly didn't want their husbands to know, it's not unthinkable that they confided in each other. Soon, rumors spread through camp that Victor was sleeping with married women. This infidelity didn't sit well with many of the followers. River Road Fellowship had been founded in the wake of The Way International a cult that had split apart due to adulterous activity on the part of their leader. Victor had promised that would not continue within River Road, but he had gone back on his word. In 2008, Don decided to leave River Road Fellowship. 
She wrote Victor a letter explaining the adultery was driving her away. When she found out that Victor was sleeping with other married women, she realized she was not special or chosen. She realized Victor was a mere man, driven by lust. She also accused Victor of having sex with the maidens. This revealed that while no one outwardly said anything, people in the camp did suspect Victor of having sex with the girls in his lodge. But not one single member, including the girls' parents, acted on any of these suspicions. Dawn's letter and the rumors around Shepard's camp sent Victor into damage control. He decided to get in front of the story. He gathered the maidens and confessed to the affairs. When confronted by several of the men about the affairs, he did not hide anything. He had sinned, but was granted forgiveness by the Lord. The effect this confession had on the maidens is startling. Lindsay Tornambi felt sick as she watched Victor forgive himself for desecrating the holy sacrament of marriage. She had long suspected him to be a fraud and hoped that the other members would finally begin to realize that Victor was far from the Lord's shepherd. Then, one of the women Victor had been sleeping with sent a letter to the local police department accusing Victor of adultery. In the state of Minnesota, adultery manipulated by members of the clergy was illegal. Despite the unorthodox nature of the River Road Fellowship, Victor would have been recognized under state law as clergy. So what Victor was doing was not only morally wrong, but it was also against the law. The police interviewed the women who slept with Victor and collected testimony from Lindsay and Jess. They turned the complaint over to the Pine County attorney, who in turn did nothing. They claimed the women engaged in the act of adultery of their own free will. As far as Victor's sleeping with the maidens, those were dismissed as mere suspicions. Victor may have avoided prosecution, but he didn't know what police knew or how much evidence they had against him. He no longer felt safe in Minnesota. Things were falling apart quickly at Shepard's camp. Men confronted Victor about whether or not he had slept with their wives. Some members left the group. Victor needed another remote location out of state, somewhere he could hide and rebuild, safe from Minnesotan police. He also needed to keep his remaining followers away from the dozens who were leaving him. Victor decided to send some believers back to their former hometowns to await instruction. Lindsay and her family returned to Pennsylvania. Victor and a select few believers set up a new home base in a rural area between the towns of Spokane and Bellingham in Washington state. Washington may have been chosen for more lenient laws toward adultery. The loyal remnant of the River Road Fellowship followed him west. In 2009, Victor sold Shepherd's Camp and set up new small businesses in Washington. His wife, Stephanie, remained by his side throughout this ordeal. His confessed affairs did nothing to deter her loyalty. Together, they opened up a small nutrition company and a publishing company. Soon, he summoned the maidens to Washington. Despite having been driven out of Minnesota for adultery, he had no intention of giving up his lifestyle. In March 2010, Lindsay arrived in Washington to live with the other maidens. She was now 23 years old and nine years Victor's victim, and she had reached her limit. By June, she demanded to go back to live with her parents in Pennsylvania. Lindsay had tried to leave before, but the social pressures of the cult stopped her. This time, the factors were ripe for her to finally break away. After moving back to Pennsylvania, 
Lindsay caught a glimpse of the modern world and realized there was life beyond Victor. Victor tried to guilt her into staying, but Lindsay's mind was made up. So the fellowship bought Lindsay a train ticket and she ventured cross country back to her parents. But this was not some fun excursion. Lindsay found herself in an alien world full of cell phones, automated ticketing systems, foreign technology, and something called the internet. It was almost as if Lindsay had time traveled from the distant past, left to grapple with an unfamiliar future, which was likely Victor's intent. He hoped this strange new world would terrify her and send her running back to him, too scared to venture on her own. But Victor underestimated Lindsay's resolve. She made it home and confided to her parents about the years of sexual assault. It was the first time her parents had heard a definitive account of something long suspected, that Victor had spent the better part of 10 years raping the young women living under his roof. But as she opened up about this intense trauma, she watched her mother's face fill with love and compassion, but not for her, for Victor. Lindsay's mother, Peggy, stopped Lindsay mid-story. She swore her loyalty to Victor and demanded the same of Lindsay. If Lindsay was going to keep bringing up these accusations, then Lindsay would have to leave their home. Lindsay was shocked and heartbroken, but she also showed incredible strength. She left her mother's home, and they have not spoken since. Peggy's reaction is painful and disturbing, and maybe a result of cognitive dissonance. A 1955 study by researchers Leon Festinger, Henry Riken, and Stanley Schachter examined that when people are shown evidence that disproves a deeply held belief, they'll sometimes reject that evidence and further rationalize said belief. Peggy needed Victor to be the savior she had devoted her life to and rejected a conflicting narrative. While Lindsay may have been estranged from her mother, she did find support from extended family. When she told her story to an aunt and uncle, they urged her to contact authorities. Her testimony was what was needed to go after Victor Bernard. Lindsay remembered the exact date, January 3rd, 2012. She called Pine County authorities to tell them her story. Just a little while later, Jess Schweiss also came forward. She told her parents, but they too rejected her story. Jess's mother simply said, the blood of the lamb washes all. Lindsay and Jess brought what they could to authorities. Police gathered Jessica's calendars, which marked the days when Victor had sexually assaulted her. They also took Lindsay's diaries, which mentioned visits to the lodge. Police knew this was insufficient evidence to press charges, but they did want to bring Victor in for an interview. Investigators in Washington state were sent to question River Road Fellowship members who were spread out across homes in the rural Spokane suburbs. But what started as routine questioning quickly turned into a manhunt. The members claimed they didn't know where Victor was and offered no cooperation in the investigation. Victor technically wasn't a wanted criminal, so law enforcement couldn't pull resources into finding him. Washington State Police eventually spotted Victor Bernard carrying suitcases heading to the airport, but they had no warrant for his arrest and no means to stop him. Victor boarded a plane and flew to Brazil. Authorities figured his maiden, Cristina Liberato, was hiding him with her family in Brazil. 
and without a warrant or formal charges, authorities had no way to extradite Bernard back to U.S. soil. After all the courage it took for Lindsay and Jess to come to authorities, it seemed as if Victor would escape punishment. Lindsay did not give up. Throughout 2012 and 2013, she wrote to every civil servant she could think of, from local congressmen to President Obama, but the only reply she received was from the FBI, who said they could not help her, as her abuse had technically not crossed state lines. Lindsay lost all hope. It seemed that after years of abuse and suffering, she would receive no justice, whether from her parents or the U.S. government. Victor was being washed clean. We'll continue on Lindsay's quest for justice in a moment. Now back to the story. Throughout 2012 and 2013, River Road Fellowship survivor Lindsay Tornambi, now 28, was methodically writing every level of government and law enforcement imaginable, searching for anyone who could help her bring Victor Bernard to justice. But nobody seemed able to help. Her case was so unique that it seemed to fall through a million different loopholes in the legal system. She had left the isolation of Shepherd's camp only to find isolation in a larger world that seemingly didn't care. Her aunt said Lindsay fell into a deep depression and for a time harbored suicidal thoughts. Lindsay would ask her aunt if she ever thought about what it would be like to jump off a bridge. Dr. Margaret Thaler Singer, author of Cults in Our Midst, has written about the myriad challenges facing cult survivors. These range from guilt and shame over what they went through to conflicted feelings about those still within the cult. They also battle profound loneliness, coupled with mounting frustration that Victor was evading justice. It's easy to see why she felt so hopeless. A few years earlier, fellow survivor Jess Schweiss did attempt suicide. Like Lindsay, she was in her mid-twenties and was tormented by the same emotional trauma that Lindsay felt upon leaving the cult. Jess Schweiss cut her parents out of her life completely. She blamed them fully for what happened to her, saying that as a child, she was given no choice about the path they placed her on. And when she confronted them about her own abuse, her parents forgave Victor. In October 2013, Lindsay received a phone call she never thought she'd get. On the other line was a Minneapolis investigative reporter, Tom Lydon. He received a tip that there was a religious cult that used to operate in rural Minnesota. At first, he thought the story was crazy, but he decided to do some digging to see what he could find. We don't know who Tom Lydon's source was, but his reporting led him to Lindsay Tornambi. He asked her if these rumors of a sex cult were true. She asked him how much time he had. He said all the time in the world. Lindsay finally found someone to believe her. Tom Lydon interviewed Lindsay and Jess for several months. In early 2014, he broke the story of the River Road Fellowship on local news station Fox 9 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Much of the details you've heard in these episodes come from Lydon's reporting. Lydon interviewed both Lindsay and Jess, bringing the horrors of the River Road Fellowship to light. The grisly, unthinkable ordeal these young women went through as teenagers was made public. The wall that Victor had built around them had crumbled. The story left Minneapolis in complete shock, 
and the story did not stay confined to the Twin Cities. Major websites like Gawker and the Daily Beast were running pieces on the River Road Fellowship. Current members were turning away from the media, but survivors began speaking out. Victor's own family called him bizarre and egomaniacal. An anonymous relative said Victor has a huge ego and thinks he's the holiest man on earth. This was Victor's nightmare. For years, he told his members that the devil could be found in pop culture and the mass media. Now, that media was exposing him for the devil that he was. Meanwhile, in another stroke of good luck, Pine County elected a new prosecutor, Reese Fredrickson, who was much more optimistic about the ability to charge Bernard for his crimes. Armed with the testimony of Lindsay and Jess, and given the fact that Victor was on the run, Fredrickson felt he had more than enough to take action. On April 11, 2014, the Pine County attorney formally charged Victor Bernard with a staggering 59 counts of sexual abuse. A nationwide warrant was issued for his arrest. There was just one problem. No one knew where Victor was. Victor went from profit to fugitive. While authorities saw him fly to Brazil, they suspected he had returned to Washington State in secret. Victor Bernard's name went on the most wanted list with a $25,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. Authorities found no help from the River Road fellows in the Spokane area. They remained fiercely loyal. Victor had brainwashed them into not believing anything they may have seen on the local news, so they still presumed his innocence. It was them against the demonic world at large. Deputy U.S. Marshal Brian Peterson said Victor Bernard was one of the most unique fugitives he had ever hunted because of Victor's lack of self-sufficiency. He relied heavily on the maidens at Shepherd's Camp for all his basic needs, like clothing and food. The marshals didn't think he'd want to venture too far from them and decided to concentrate their search there. There were still several maidens loyal to Victor within the Washington State River Road Fellowship. The marshals put the homes of those maidens under surveillance for several months, but there was no sign of Victor. After all those years of abuse, it's hard to fathom why some maidens would remain so loyal. But it's important to remember what Don Koch said. She had felt chosen by someone she thought was a prophet. It's possible these maidens felt the same way. In an effort to help other potential victims, Lindsay granted numerous requests for interviews and media appearances. It's no surprise that she would use her experience to help others. But it is surprising that another member of her family came forward, her father, Carmen. While Lindsay's mother remained loyal to Victor, her father, Carmen, openly denounced the River Road Fellowship. He claimed to have known nothing about Victor raping his daughter while she was in his care. But Lindsay would dispute that, saying her father knew full well what was happening at the lodge. Their family schism would find itself on national television on The Dr. Phil Show in November 2014. Six years after breaking free of the fellowship, Lindsay would finally confront her father, a man who married her off to her abuser at 12 on national television. It was a remarkable thing to watch. Carmen denied any knowledge of the assault, but throughout the interview, he would make strange backpedals, stating that he had no knowledge but was also under Victor's spell and didn't know how to say no. It painted a portrait of a man who knew he had failed his daughter but was unable to fully accept his culpability. 
It clearly broke Lindsay, who reminded Carmen of the day he had given Victor permission to rape her. It was the same day that he had married her off at age 12. She asked him over and over again, how could you not know? But he had no answer. Meanwhile, the U.S. Marshals were still on the hunt for Victor. Any attempt to find him in Spokane came up empty. But something drew their attention back to Brazil. Investigators found out that Christina, Victor's maiden, came from a very wealthy family. She had recently purchased three properties in Brazil. U.S. Marshals believed they could have been places to hide Victor, or worse, places for Victor to start up another River Road Fellowship, safely protected from U.S. authorities. The Marshals Service enlisted the help of Brazilian authorities and put Christina under watch. But Christina proved a hard mouse to catch. Deputy U.S. Marshal Brian Peterson said she knew she was being followed immediately, and she proved adept at throwing them off her trail. She made the gathering of intelligence as difficult as possible. But in doing so, she also proved that she had something to hide, and that something might well be Victor Bernard. While Christina may have been able to hide where she was going, she couldn't always hide where she was coming from. Brazilian authorities concentrated on one particular condominium. In February 2015, in the resort town of Pipa Beach in northern Brazil, Victor Bernard and Cristina were enjoying a pleasant morning together. But it was quickly interrupted by loud knocks at the door, followed by the charge of heavily armed Brazilian police. The cops had set up a perimeter around the property. In moments, it was over. Victor Bernard was in police custody. For the second time since she left the River Road Fellowship, Lindsay Ternambi received a call she never thought she'd get. Victor was under arrest. It was an incredibly emotional moment for Lindsay. Vindication after years of people, including her own parents, turning away from her. After years of isolation and pain, Lindsay might get justice. However, transporting Victor back to the U.S. wasn't going to be a simple matter. Negotiations between the U.S. and Brazilian governments dragged on for a year. During that time, Victor tried to hang himself in his prison cell. Was Victor overwhelmed by guilt over what he had done? Not likely. Victor was used to living in his own private paradises. He more likely didn't want to have to face the prospect of a hard life in prison. In March 2016, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Victor Bernard appeared in handcuffs in a Pine County courthouse. Tom Lydon was there to get his first look at Victor Bernard, but life on the road was not kind to the former shepherd. Instead of the bold, confident figure who commanded people's loyalty, the court saw a weak, thin figure, haunted and disheveled. Lydon said later Victor looked like he was pulled from a drunk tank. Bail was set for $1.5 million, even though prosecutors argued for the much larger sum of $7 million. Pine County attorneys worried that if Victor's remaining followers sold off their assets, they could raise the funds. Other conditions were set, such as Victor surrendering his passport to make sure he wasn't a flight risk. Prosecutors had good reason to worry about his followers' loyalty. Lindsay Ternambi's mother wrote a character witness letter on behalf of Victor. She wrote that Lindsay's testimony was false and that Victor was a compassionate servant of Christ. 
She said she only saw Victor treat Lindsay with purity. It crushed Lindsay. In July of 2016, Victor's wife Stephanie filed for divorce. In the filing, Stephanie claimed to have been separated from Victor since 2010, shortly after discovering he was sleeping with married women. However, other family members of Victor told the press she knew of Victor's sexual abuse of the maidens. It's possible the affairs snapped her out of her spell. It could also have been her desire to protect their four sons from Victor's influence. On October 11, 2016, Victor Bernard once again shocked the nation. He pled guilty to two counts of assault that would send him to prison for 30 years. He claimed he wanted to spare the victims the torment of trial, wherein their family members would testify against them. Lindsay and the other survivors were dubious. They believed Victor fell on the sword to appear like a martyr to his followers, when in actuality, he was protecting his own legacy by skirting around the trial. Only three followers appeared in court to support Victor on October 11th. Then guards removed him from the room, and in that instant, the fellowship was dead. Like Jess Schweiss, Lindsay Turnambi moved away from her family. She told Tom Lydon she didn't consider her parents' family anymore. They chose Victor. She was choosing a future for herself. And on January 8th, 2017, a fellow inmate named Shane Kringen entered Victor's cell, then brutally beat Victor unconscious. Victor suffered broken facial bones, ribs, lacerations, and a collapsed lung. Victor was left with severe brain trauma, hearing problems, vision problems, and memory gaps for the rest of his life. When brought before a judge for the assault, Kringen claimed he was doing God's work. It seems that after years of inflicting abuse while claiming to be Christ incarnate, Victor had found himself abused by a man acting as God's vengeance. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of Parcast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>